Well, welcome again to Advent Church. Advent is upon us. Advent is the, the season of anticipation, the season of anticipating the birth of the Savior and King Jesus Christ. Um, and sometimes in this Christmas season, I don't know about you guys, maybe we already have a taste of that kind of, we're going from thing to thing to thing already. We're one event to the next, and sometimes it could seem a little overwhelming. And then there's this little thing called life that comes in on top of that, right? When we're running hot, we don't have that much margin. It doesn't take much of regular life events, whether drama or sickness or evil or things like that, to make us feel overwhelmed. If you are not in a season of being overwhelmed right now, rejoice that you are not in a season of being overwhelmed. But I would also caution you in wisdom, prepare, because those seasons always come, because we're human and sin is alive and well. But how do we prepare for those moments where we're just like, I don't know what's going on and I can't handle this? How do we prepare for that? How, what should our attitude be when faced with a situation that seems impossible? And as we start our Advent series in Luke, we'll hopefully be able to answer those questions and more. So if you are not there already, head to Luke chapter 1. Last week, we finished up our two-year journey through the Gospel of Matthew. Advent is traditionally, I know this is traditionally not the first week of Advent, but we're non-denominational Protestant. We can flex when we want to, right? We're not, we're not, we're not we had to finish Matthew. We had a plan, so we finished Matthew, and so this is technically the second week of Advent. For, for us, it's the first week of Advent. We should be pretty familiar with the Gospel narrative, the type of of genre that we're dealing with here in the gospel according to Luke because we just spent so much time in the gospel of Matthew. When we parachute into Luke, again, some of our contextual work there is done. And it's important to point out that the, the gospel books are not the same thing as the gospel itself. Sometimes I hear that as a pastor. I'll ask, what is the gospel? And someone will say, well, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I'll say, well, yes. That is true, that's where the gospel events are, but the, gospels, it's the gospel, singular, is not just in those books in particular, right? It's, it's, those books are different from the gospel per se. The books contain the events of the gospel, but when we say gospel around these parts, and we say gospel a lot around these parts, we are talking about God's plan to redeem a sinful human race through his son, Jesus Christ. And we only do that through faith. And so in a lot of ways, the whole Bible contains the gospel, and the whole Bible is the story of God's redemption. You hear me say it a lot. The Bible tells one story. It all tells the same thing, the story of Jesus and the story of God working through Jesus to redeem a people. And I just want to touch, I know it's not actually our passage, but Luke, the first four verses of Luke really set the tone for what this is. So look at Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, the writer, Luke, also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus. It's one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible. Most excellent Theophilus, right? Here's what, here, look at verse 4. That you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. 
This is what Luke has done. Did you, did you catch all that? This is the confidence in the reliability of the Gospels of Jesus Christ. That Luke has carefully compiled through eyewitnesses, though he was not an eyewitness directly himself, he hung out with a lot of eyewitnesses, carefully preserved and handed down. So why? So that we might have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. And as we kind of continue on through a little overview here, we see that John the Baptist, the birth of John the Baptist is foretold through his father Zechariah and his mother Elizabeth. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, the one preparing the way for the Messiah. An angel named Gabriel visits Zechariah and lets him know that his wife, who has so far had no children, even now in her old age, will conceive and will bear a son. And you are to name him John. And indeed, that comes to pass. But from, from, comes to pass. From there, Gabriel heads to Nazareth to deliver another message, and this time to another young woman named Mary. Let's see how that goes, as Bob read for us. Look at verse 26. In the sixth month, again, the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, that wasn't supposed to happen, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So if we pause there, we back up. Gabriel, fresh from his visit to uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah, comes to this young lady, probably a teenager, Mary, who is unmarried and a virgin. And it's worth mentioning, right, that angels are God's messengers, right? We see this angel Gabriel going about doing the work of the Lord, spreading the message of God. We saw one recently sitting on the rock on, that was rolled away from the tomb where Jesus has been resurrected. So he heads up to Nazareth, and I know you guys love maps, so I have a little map. So cool. See, I heard somebody say that, right? So we have a map. So, so Jerusalem is down here, right? Nazareth is way up here in Sussex County, okay? That's where we're dealing with. What's, what's, what's remarkable about Nazareth? Absolutely nothing is remarkable about Nazareth. That's the point. Nazareth is a podunk little town in Galilee. There's nothing there. And so Nazareth really isn't remarkable, but where, what, who Mary is engaged to be married to is quite remarkable. His name is Joseph, and he's from the line of David, as in the line of King David, the greatest king of all of Israel. And this is enormously significant because all the prophets agree that the Messiah, the long-awaited king, has to come through the line of David and the line of Israel. Isaiah tells us that the Messiah will come from the shoot of Jesse, who is David's father. So time and time again, hundreds of years before this, we know that the Messiah will come through someone who is aligned with the family of David. Gabriel says to Mary, greetings, again with the greetings. That's what Jesus said when they saw him on the road, greetings, greetings. And he calls her the favored one and says, the Lord is with you. The usual reaction to seeing an angel up close and personal happens. She's completely terrified. She's greatly troubled, and her first question simply in her mind is this. What kind of greeting is this? What does this mean? Why is there an angel in my living room right now? 
Why am I so terrified of this angel? What kind of greeting, what kind of encounter is this? Mary is confused. She's scared. She's wondering what all this means, and Gabriel explains. Look at verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel says to Mary, don't be afraid. Literally in the Greek, fear not. Again, you have found favor with God. To find favor means that God is pleased. So if our children find favor in our eyes, right, we are pleased with them. You have made your bed, correct. I, you have now found favor in my eyes, right? What, is it, what does it mean? Why have I found favor? What he tells her is mind-blowing. She says, you're, you're going to become pregnant. You're going to have a son, and you will name him Jesus. And he goes on and says, he will be great and be called son of the Most High, and he will have the throne of his father David, and he will reign as king over his kingdom forever. Talk about your information overload. Like, probably a teenage girl, terrified. There's an angel here telling her all of these things. Mary, you're going to be pregnant. You're going to have a baby. You're going to name him Israel. You're going to name, oh, you're going to name him Jesus, sorry, which is the Greek form of the name Joshua, which means Yahweh or Jehovah saves. It's all information overload, all seemingly very impossible. And the angel says, Gabriel says, there's two other qualifications here. The first one is he will be called Son of the Most High, meaning the Son of God. That's how Jesus will be known. The term has connections all the way back to Genesis where Abram is called blessed by the God Most High by Melchizedek. And clearly in the Psalms, over 21 times, the words most high are used to describe God. In Psalm 47, 2, it says, For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared a great king over all the earth. So clearly in the Old Testament, God most high means God, almighty God, creator of all. And this God most high will be in Mary's womb. Again, talk about information overload. That's the first question, or the first qualification rather. He will be called son of the most high. But second, Gabriel tells her that this Jesus, her son, the son of the Most High, will be given the throne of his father, David. The patriarchs, the kings, the, the forefathers of the nations, uh, Israel, they called their forefathers fathers for short. He will rule and he will reign, as, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And David had a unique promise from God. And David's promise from God is that his family line, no one, there would, there would never be a man lacking on the throne that would not have the, the name David. And Bob read from that in Jeremiah 33, but just to look at that again in a few verses in 14 of Jeremiah 33, behold, the days are coming. This is Jeremiah writing hundreds of years before this moment, declares the Lord, when I will fill the, fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch. I don't know about you guys, but in my Bible, that B is capitalized because it's pointing to the Messiah. And that righteous branch will spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. 
prophecies of someone coming, the Messiah, the King, coming through the line of David, and he will reign forever. How is an earthly king, a human being, going to reign forever? We know we're talking about the Messiah here. The righteous branch, the Messiah King, will come from David's line, and he will reign forever over God's kingdom. So maybe we put these things together for the first part. We can say this. Jesus will be king of God's eternal kingdom. Jesus will be king of God's eternal kingdom. Look at, me, look, look at something with me in, back in Luke chapter 1 in our passage. How many times does Luke say that Gabriel talks about Jesus as Savior? I don't see any. He doesn't mention him as Savior. How does Gabriel mention him in this first announcement? He mentions him as King. He mentions him as eternal King Messiah. Now, of course, that is not to say that Jesus is not our Savior. We know he is our Savior through all the other passages of Scripture. But right here, where Gabriel announces who is going to be in Mary's womb, he doesn't say Savior. He says King. He says who is going to be in your womb is going to be the eternal King of God's kingdom. And we often think of Jesus as Savior, and we're okay with Jesus being our Savior. We love the idea of having someone save us, but we aren't so much maybe all the time of thinking of him as a king. Because if he's a king, then that implies authority, and that implies that I have to submit to his authority. And sometimes in evangelicalism, we're fine with Jesus as Savior, but maybe not so much fine with him being our king. Because if he's king, he has authority over us. But he is the king, and he does have authority over us. Last week, as we finished Matthew, we saw verse 18 of 28, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And this has huge effects on us, both personally and missionally. Personally, we talked about it last week, that if Jesus is actually king, which he is, then we submit to him then what Jesus says in in the Word of God as far as how we're supposed to live our life, that's not just a book. That actually has warrant. That actually has authority over us. We actually need to obey it. And so when he says these things are sins, we need to listen to those things and not fall into sin. But also missionally, how does this change our evangelism? How does this change the way we live our lives? How does it change our church work? Maybe if we focused more of Jesus as Gabriel does. Maybe if we focus more of Jesus as king. And he is king. And that changes everything. It's a spiritual reality, church, that as we do the work of the church, we're not so much going around begging people to invite Jesus into their hearts. We're not so much going around to beg people, just give Jesus a chance and your life will be a little bit better. No, we're actually going around and we're telling people there is a king. I know it doesn't seem like it right now, but there actually is. There actually is someone in charge. And all of this that you see all around us is just rebellion against the king. But we have a good and we have a gracious king. And instead of leaving us as orphans, instead of leaving us as objects of his wrath for our rebellion against him, what did he do? He sent his son. He said, that's a completely different conversation, isn't it? When we think about Jesus as king. After we're welcomed into his family, then Jesus then just maybe isn't just a personal savior that we're thankful for. Then maybe we keep in our back pocket or our front pocket when we need him, right? 
How does that change? After we're in his family, then we submit to him as king and worship him because he's a good and he's a merciful king. He's a king who we joyfully submit to for his goodness, and that is a much different perspective. And I would say that is one that is extremely lacking in evangelicalism today. We do great at saying, welcome Jesus into your heart. Have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And yes, we need that, but not at the expense of Jesus as king. Church, he's our savior, but he's also our Lord. He's also our king. And that's a massively different perspective. But back to Mary, she's still got questions. She's got a lot of questions, and she's got some good logical questions as well. Look at verse 34 back in Luke 1. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child who will be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is in the sixth month with her who has been called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary's first question was wondering what kind of greeting this was. What is going on here? What does this mean? Mary's second question is how? How on earth is this going to happen? Verse 27 already told us that Mary was a virgin, and now in verse 34, she says that flat out to Gabriel. Hey, uh, Mr. Terrifying Angel Guy, listen, I don't want to look at you directly because you're scaring me, but I just have one basic question. It might sound weird, but just, you know, I hear you. How? How am I going to have a child? I, I'm not married. I've never been with... A man, not to mention when Joseph finds out about this, that's going to be one awkward conversation. Mary knows, like every other human being on the planet, where babies come from. They come from a man and from a woman having sexual relations. Law of cause and effect, right? Sorry, parents, if you haven't had that conversation yet, I'll leave that on you to do that over lunch. <laughs> Mary is engaged to Joseph but apparently, like the good Jews that they were, law-abiding Jews, they hadn't consummated their relationship sexually yet. And Matthew's account, he records this encounter with the angel again, where, where Joseph evidently is aware of this vision. They had that conversation, right? Mary and Joseph had that conversation. And Joseph's idea was, well, I'm a logical guy. Uh, looks like she cheated on me, so uh, I'll just divorce her quietly instead of, instead of subjecting her to public shame. Now, realize that that's how that was done back then. A betrothal was much different than our modern-day engagement. You could only break it through a legal obligation or a legal contract through much like a divorce, right? A lot different than today where you just give the ring back and block them on Facebook. It's, it's totally different. So Joseph loves Mary and wants to honor her, and his idea once he hears the news of this is, okay, we'll just handle this quietly. We'll just divorce quietly. Gabriel has to pay Joseph a visit too to get him to calm down, and he eventually changes his mind and stays with Mary. But Mary's question, again, is completely logical. How? How? In other words, angel, guy, Mr. Gabriel, this is impossible. Gabriel answers her, well, Mary, because the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High, once again, will overshadow you. And you, therefore, catch this, because through the power of the Holy Spirit, the child to be born will be holy, completely 
perfectly holy, sinless. And besides, your relative Elizabeth, she's, although she's super old, she still is going to have a kid. And that is a miracle as well. Because guess what? He says, nothing is impossible with God. I know it's impossible for you to think about this, and I know it's logical that you think it's impossible, but you're not dealing with you and your fallen brain and everything else. Nothing is impossible with God. So for the second point, I can't say it any more clearly than Luke. Nothing is impossible with God. To say it differently, maybe an impossibility for us is nothing for God. There's no such thing as impossible with God. Miracles are not even miraculous to God. What we think is like some crazy miracle is a Tuesday for God. It, it's nothing for Him. The, and the impossibility of miracles, right, is one of the most common objections that we hear towards Christianity. Don't you know, you silly Christians, miracles are impossible. Virgins don't get pregnant. They only get pregnant one way. And you should have learned that in sixth grade biology class. It doesn't work like this. So miracles are impossible, therefore your God is a sham. And we have to define what a miracle is. A miracle is a violation of natural law. We say natural law like things like gravity or something like that. Laws of cause and effect, laws that govern, create, govern creation. And yes, it is impossible for us, mere human beings, to break those laws. Right? So in one sense, we've got to give it to our opponents and say, yes, absolutely, I agree. Miracles are impossible. That's not the question. The problem and the question is with your definition of God. Because for God, the creator of all, the sovereign Lord and King of kings of all the universe, that's not a miracle. He's doing what he does. If he created the world and he's sovereign over all creation, he can do whatever he wants with his creation. It might seem like a miracle to us because in our limited brains it is, but not to God. That's why we can't lose the doctrine of creation because if God created the whole world and everything in it, then he can do whatever he wants with his creation. God can interrupt his own natural laws. He can change creation. He can do what he wants with them. Miracles are impossible for us, but they're not even miraculous for God. Specifically here, we're dealing with one miracle in context, which is the miracle of the virgin birth. Historically, the church has always believed this. Matthew, in his account, just states it rather bluntly. And Matthew, starting in verse 18 of chapter 1, he says it this way, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, meaning sexually, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call him Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, taken right out of Isaiah chapter 7, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not, again sexually, until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. 
The Old Testament, again, right out of Isaiah, which we read that in Matthew 1, tells this is be one of the signs in Isaiah 7, 14, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. Church fathers from the 2nd and 3rd centuries all believe this and on. Ignatius in 105 AD wrote he was truly born of a virgin. Justin Martyr in 160 AD said we even affirm, affirm rather he was born of a virgin. And Tertullian in 207 wrote, whoever wishes to see Jesus, the son of David, must believe him through the virgin birth. We stand on the historical Christian orthodox doctrine of the virgin birth. We have to. That's what the Bible tells us. Scientism and the worship of science, humanism, secularism laughs in our face. On the one hand, you kind of could recognize how they would. But on the other hand, it just is a fundamental misunderstanding on their part of exactly who our God is. What we're, again, agreeing on is that miracles are impossible for us, but not for, uh, for God, because nothing is impossible with God. And, and the encouragement for us, church, is this. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He never changes. He's still God most high. He's still the God of miracles. He's still the one that nothing is impossible for. But let's not fall into the trap of the prosperity gospel, right? A lot of guys like to hijack this and turn this towards ourselves and say, whatever breakthrough you need, whatever new income you need, whatever personal relationship you need, that's then, nothing is then impossible for you. And that is just so self-centered. We have to refocus our own definitions of what a miracle is. When the person that we've been praying for for 20 years finally bows the knee to King Jesus... That's a miracle. When the marriage that has nearly been shipwrecked in adultery turns around and flourishes through the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, that's a miracle. When the God Most High enables us to get through that day where we are feeling completely overwhelmed by darkness or evil on all sides and sickness and whatever, that is a miracle. When we, we church, we were once his enemies where we had no desire to follow him at all, when now we're sitting here Sunday morning hearing from the word of God, thinking about what a miracle it is that a virgin conceived the son of God, our savior, and we believe it, that's a miracle. So we've got to change our definition of a miracle because miracles still happen every single day. It is a miracle that God saves anyone. And he does it every single day. So it's not so much of whether miracles are not or whether they happen or not, but rather how we respond to those miracles, to that truth when we see it. Let's, let's see how Mary does that. Let's look at verse 38. You guys thought I forgot about verse 38, didn't I? You know I do that to you all the time. Verse 38, Mary says, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary responds, I'm your servant. Let it be done. Whatever you, whatever you say, your will be done. Mary doesn't question anymore. Mary, I'm sure though, terrified and sure having a million thoughts running around in her mind. She doesn't protest. She doesn't run out. She comes to this moment of acceptance and says, I'm your servant. Whatever you say. 
And so I'll just say the big idea this way. We submit to King Jesus even when it seems impossible. We submit to King Jesus even when it seems impossible. And church, how much different would it look in our lives if we actually had the attitude of Mary? And some of these life events, when, when life kind of is thrust upon us, when we're at the end of our rope and we have a little idea how we're going to get through what's going on and whatever, however, nothing makes sense, right? We say, like Mary did, I am your servant. Let your will be done. And we say, I'm your servant, Lord, King. Let it be not according to me, but according to you. When God created us as questioners and meaning makers, it's fine to ask what Mary did. We ask why. We ask how. We ask all those things. God created us like that with brains that want meaning, right? But eventually, church, we've got to get to that point where we say, your will be done. You are my king. I am your servant. Mary does this. She's told that she'll be with the child as a virgin. And of course, her first question is how. But then she changes, and we see a resolve in Mary, don't we? And she says, I'm your servant. Let it be according to your word. How can we cultivate more of this, church? How can we cultivate more of that? How can we cultivate more trust in our king? When we have those situations that are thrust upon us, and we say, I can't do this. This is crazy. How can we cultivate that response of, yes, Lord, what your will is, I know that you are with me. How can we understand that the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that nothing is impossible for him? That marriage can change, that parenting situation can change, that job situation can change, our lives can change because the King has come. That's what we remember. We submit to Jesus even when it seems impossible. That sin can finally be defeated. We actually can have joy this Christmas despite impossible circumstances. Why? Because the king has come. And this probably comes as no surprise to us, but we can't change reality. Like in here, hopefully, that comes as no surprise to us. Out there, reality is kind of what you want it to be, right? But in here, I like to think that we actually know what reality is. It's truth. It corresponds with what actually is happening. Imagine being a scared teenage little girl and hearing this news and looking at how Mary submits. And we can learn so much from that. Can we not? We submit to King Jesus even when it seems impossible. And so how do we do that? And we start by cultivating that preparation for the, for the moment that we do feel like Mary. We start by arming ourselves up with the word of God. We start by getting to know our king. We start by spending time with our king. We start by spending time with him in prayer and reading this book where he's given us and told us all about himself and given us examples of how we can trust him because we can't. We start by getting brothers and sisters around us who remind us and encourage us to stay the course who encourage us on in our walk. And one day when we do have to have this moment, this kind of merry moment, we can say that we submit to King Jesus even when it seems impossible. Father, we thank you for the start, the unofficial start of the Christmas season. As we look at Advent and as we look at the anticipation of your coming, Lord, help us to see you as not only Savior, but also as King. 
Help us to see you, Lord, as you truly are, the fulfillment of so many prophecies. The King of kings and Lord of lords, as Jesus told us, the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And Lord, help us to submit to you. Father, in those moments, and maybe for specifically those moments where people here are facing impossible moments right now, would you remind them of the truth of this story? That we can submit to King Jesus, just like Mary did, even when it seems impossible. Why? Because you are who you say you are. And you have come, and you have been born, and you have lived the perfect life, and you've died the death on the cross and been resurrected, Lord. The work has been done. You have given us your Holy Spirit, which empowers us to do these things. Help us, Father, in the name of Jesus, to glorify you. And we pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.